I'm Tia Kramer, director of The Project Room. This month, I was excited to sit down with interdisciplinary artist Tamika Norris, who is visiting Seattle between her move from New Orleans to Berlin, Germany. Tamika recently completed a full-length feature film, Mika Jean, How She Got Good, which debuted at Prospect 3, New Orleans. In the making of this work, Tamika had her identity and creative property appropriated by a member of her production team. Join us as we discuss this experience, intellectual property, and authorship as it relates to our current topic, Monument. Special thanks to the Netty Artist Award for sponsoring Tamika's Seattle visit and this Project Room podcast. Enjoy! Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming to the Project Room and to Seattle. Yeah, first time. I want to just start right into the big stuff. Okay. Um, you came to Seattle this week to give a lecture, the annual Ned Banky Artist Lecture at the mm-hmm. Friar Museum. And much of your work, I thought this even before seeing your lecture, was, is quite provocative and direct and at times confrontational. Mm-hmm. And yet you also talk a lot about vulnerability mm-hmm. and being vulnerable in public mm-hmm. and the, the kind of presenting work that's public that you don't realize is public until after it's public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, to quote you directly, you said, I'm not really one for shock value. Mm-hmm. Really, I'm not. <laughs> so can you respond to this apparent paradox? And what kind of drives you to make your work? Um, I, I guess there's this thing with, with my practice where it's kind of like having a lover and wanting to know the needs of your lover. So I try to ask my practice, what, what does it need, right? And I know from my work that it's my body that has to act out these things, typically, so it's not that I'm I'm personally trying to confront people or 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 be provocative. It's just that my practice has told me that I have to be the vessel mm-hmm. for these things because it's my it is my body that that somehow makes the impact. Mm-hmm. So and I know there's a contradiction there for sure, um, but yeah. I know there's a contradiction, but, and I think at an earlier place in my career, um, shock value maybe was important or like being in school and realizing it was about, you know, blowing that load all at once to get people to pay attention or to get that award or whatever. And, um, I think with age and realizing, oh shit, people are looking now and going, you know, I think shock value was for when I was trying to gather an audience to make people look and now that they are looking I'm like okay actually this is kind of terrifying (laughs) people are looking and there's no need to come with the shock value if if you already have a a, a willing audience right so and I think it just it also just comes with like maturing and growing as an artist right and you talked about that last night when you were talking about how early on in your practice you did things that you wouldn't do now. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of naivete that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. allowed you to just really go out and do something. Mm-hmm. And then you'd get a lot of attention for that something and you'd be like, my grandmother was watching. Mm-hmm. My family was watching. Mm-hmm. 
oh boy, mm-hmm. what did I just do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's been really tough because, I mean, you know, I didn't really think like, oh, my, at the time, maybe my 75-year-old grandmother would be trolling the internet, you know, looking (laughs) for things about me, but she's a proud grandparent. So occasionally, you know, she would want to show whoever, you know, that was coming over, you know, what her granddaughter was up to and same with my mom. And there are a few things, you know, online that, um, I mean, even my students, I teach, you know, and I know that sometimes they go online and they look up my work and, you know, there's, there's my partially naked body or my completely naked body, you know, on the internet. And, um, there's things that I've been quoted as saying that are maybe provocative or things that I don't necessarily think anymore or people that I've been critical of publicly and not realizing you know, I just sometimes forget that on this little device here, actually, this is going to blast off to many people. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think this is also about, like, the human experience. We're sitting across each other, you know, at a table, and it feels very intimate. Mm-hmm. But... Right, and, and things, <laughs> we shift as people with time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things in our question of exploring mm-hmm. legacy, that mm-hmm. we shift... And then mm-hmm. there's this history we leave behind, and yeah. there's this history we make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes yeah. the history we leave behind has ramifications we didn't intend. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, and the internet is just like, I mean, I guess the, the prime example of, of how that works. You um, can't always change what's, what lives in the world, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There are things that I would love to see come down off the internet, that I didn't post and there's almost no way for me to find out who the original, you know, source was of the person that uploaded this content about me. And I don't have time to Google myself and make every editor's note or correction or say, actually, when you quoted me there, actually what I meant to say was, or what I actually said was, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that being more careful is the answer. I also think it's kind of interesting to watch the trail of the journey through through the internet, for example, like works that I've done a long time ago, how they live in the world. I mean, it gives me an opportunity to watch to to, to see to see the trajectory as well. Mm -hmm. Things that I've tried to forget about or that I forgot that I did or said, you know, it's a good lesson even for me you know, to think about, it's just a, a trail of, 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 of mindsets or a trail of moments in time that are kind of, you know, chronicled through multiple sources. You, I think you should step back and tell us a little bit about your film, because <laughs> I think that that's a really, and the experience of making the film. Yeah. Okay, so my family is from the Gulf Coast, so they live between Gulfport, Past Christian, Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Orleans. That's about a 50-mile stretch. And so I'd never actually lived in New Orleans before. My family had. My mother was born in New Orleans. Um, but I was living mostly in Mississippi when I was younger. But after Katrina, um, A, you know, this part of Mississippi isn't very desirable for an artistic practice. I mean, or a place to live or, or have community or whatever. That was the idea I had in mind. 
And um, I knew that Prospect 3 was, was going to happen, um, and I knew um, who the curator was, who someone I'd had a relationship with for many years, Franklin Sermons, and um, I called him and said, hey, you know, and I had been involved in Prospect 1.5 and Prospect 2, and I said, hey, you know, um, I want to move to New Orleans to make my most ambitious work yet, um, and can we discuss, you know, Prospect 3? And so we kind of started this dialogue when I was still in grad school, or maybe I just graduated. And so that was the impetus to, to kind of have, have the green light to go ahead and move forward with it. So I thought to make a film literally about what it meant to go back home, or the closest thing to home, um, and what it meant to negotiate multiple worlds as being sort of an insider and an outsider, um, to, to think about and talk about the the very quickly changing city, the gentrification, the transplants coming in, and feeling like there wasn't there wasn't there aren't enough people in New Orleans that can straddle both of these mentalities and both of these worlds, and I think there kind of need needs to be um, a sort of a liaison between uh, uh-huh. between the local community and the sort of transplant community. Um, and I didn't realize how difficult that would actually be. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can make a film that talks about that and talks about all of the complicated things that occur, like, you know, feeling very much in isolation because I'm not quite of the community anymore, but I'm not the same type of transplant, i.e. white, middle-class you know, uh, someone moving, like, from the Midwest or something to New Orleans to come by home and, you know, getting a job at Tulane or something and whatever. Um, so I went to Kickstarter, did a Kickstarter, um, and was thinking a lot about community. And the, the, the main objective, one of the main objectives was to raise this money and to hire young students of color, and I, I'm an adjunct at Dillard University, um, to offer them an experience to work on a film and be paid um, and just get exposure to, you know, the art world, this thing called Prospect that's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also um, brought on board a handful of, in quotes, professional people. Um, and... In that process, um, so even even in the so basically, I, I would say um, that I was somewhat poorly advised. I was advised in a way that I was setting other people up for more success than my own, hmm. and it was almost like um, because I'm the artist and not the filmmaker that somehow I was at some disadvantage and that a few people that I brought on, I feel like instead of advising me properly, they advised me in a way that it would work more in their favor, sort of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and as it turned out, there were, so there were a few different things. So one thing that happened was that one of the collaborators um, at a certain point, even though I had 
paperwork that said this is my LLC and this is we're making one film and everybody's only being paid to, you know to to work on this one film and I'm the sole owner of the LLC so it's my footage it's my life it's my grandparents it's my body it's my money it's my prospect you know invitation to other people to to participate in with me you know I'm covered um but one of the collaborators conveniently after the shoot was complete said well I should be able to do whatever I want with this footage I'm like no I would love for you to be a part of the editing process because you're super talented but it will certainly be under my direction because it's me my life my body my money my idea right and the whole right. the whole objective of, of me making a film about my life is so that my story is being told in a way that I have control over telling it which right. is which is the whole point um, and a big theme in your work, and, and a huge theme in my work, and that this was this was this was this was supposed to be the sort of uh, uh, um, reconciling moment in my practice, or one of the you know reconciling moments in my practice where I'm really taking charge in in lots of ways that I hadn't before, like I'd never crowdsourced and raised money um, in that capacity before. Um, I'd never had an LLC before and, you know, it's like, I come from a very, you know, traditional Southern background. It's like, we put money in a shoebox, you know, like much less like getting an LLC with like, you know, new checkbooks and accounts and all this stuff. So it was a very new, new experience. Um, and so ultimately, um, this young woman, and, and it's also, I think, really complicated because it's, it's, it's a woman, which is uncommon typically for the type of exploitation or appropriation that we would think of. It's, you know, it's, it's the male gaze or the male figure that's typically mm-hmm. doing this. So the fact that it was another woman made it really complicated um, in some ways for me and also who is not from the city, which made me feel really guilty that my family was being... Um, their image was being used in a way that they were out of control of, as because I was out of control of it. Um, so there is a derivative, unauthorized uh, film where I'm the star, um, and it's it's so 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 that lives in the world. I think that the interesting thing about, and especially knowing your past work, you've made. So many works, namely performance pieces that re- that are recreated works mm-hmm. of white artists. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, I loved last night, you talked about the process. So your undergrad career took, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. say, 10 years. Mm-hmm. There was this moment, this crystallized moment, when you suddenly were like, I'm doing something that's important. Mm-hmm. And once you add your body, once you're recreating these performances you're kind of installing yourself into art history Mm -hmm, in this way mm -hmm. and there's this interesting component of authorship Mm -hmm. identity Mm -hmm. branding Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you have this work where your identity your brand and your authorship Mm -hmm. is taken Mm -hmm. how do you I mean maybe talk a little bit first about those older works Mm -hmm. and your impetus for for doing them and what led you to that Mm-hmm. work and then how that how this experience has shifted your perspective on that well 
I would say one of the first times I started thinking about that was in undergrad when I did this music video called Liquor, and the lyric is like, I'm the black Cindy Sherman and the little Carol Walker, like Basquiat resurrected from the dead, motherfucker, and all this. And really, like, understanding that there was a context, right, for what I was doing. And in a very um, literal way, you know, being in school and professors give you references and, you know, so feeling like on some hand there, they were comparing me to Kara Walker's work, I guess, based on race and, and the South and, um, that, that whole experience. Um, and Cindy Sherman in the way that, you know, in, using the body and embodying, uh, non like not not explicitly specific characters but coming out of oneself to become something else um and then I guess Basquiat would come up a lot in the way that I was mark making and making paintings and um thinking about how that placed me within a context of art history and and, and these are three very different artists that are placed in very different parts of art history, right? Um, and so, I mean, still, I mean, within the context of contemporary art, but how they occupy the space right, is, is, right. A bit, is a bit different. Um, so I think that was one of the first moments. And then in grad school, I started thinking a lot about, um, again, this idea of critique and you know, sitting in a critique of paintings and not talking about line, form, composition, you know, uh, we're talking more about the conceptual and personal aspects of the work, which are also important. Um, but, um, it's also equally important to talk about how the paintings are constructed in order to build up a visual language of how to make as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. um so realizing that the body was so much in the way of the work that was somehow informing the work more than the actual painting itself which felt so problematic it's like well why is this thing even here like why why is there why am I even hanging a thing on a wall like this if the conversation has to happen through me. And I noticed that that did not happen very often with some of my other peers, particularly male, white um, artists. They were never asked to talk about their maleness or their whiteness as it related to the things that they were making. I think that that is sort of a newer conversation that's being had. Um, it's rare still, but I think it, it comes up sometimes. Yeah. Um, but But more as a... Um, but in a different way, um, more, more in its obvious privilege or something like that. Or, right. but so I thought to, um, think about people like Bruce Nauman and Marina Bramovic and Alex Bag and, um, some others and, you know, Tracy Eanman and, thinking about what would it mean to recreate, restage. And it was more for me like a study of going, well, what is it like for my body to do this? What happens if I, you know, walk in an exaggerated manner like Bruce Nauman? What does that look like when my body does it versus 
his and what different kind of conversation comes up. So right. if I dress just like him, I make the same kind of square on the floor, and I really study his movements and really try to mimic his movements step for step, what happens? Or what happens if I remake um, Art Must Be Beautiful by Marina Bramovic and her beautiful, you know, features and her silky hair as she brushes through it, whereas I've got these crazy curls and... You know, even the sound of a brush going through my hair is very different through the sound of a brush going through Marina Bramovic's hair. And how all of a sudden that work became so much about, like, hair politics, which was totally not the point. Uh-huh. Right? Right, right. At all. And I'm not even interested in hair politics, really. And, um, but doing it really as a study for myself just to see to try to even maybe see what other people see, maybe. Um, I never really exactly thought that that thought of thought, thought of it as works of art as much as I just thought of it as a study for me to um, get through, like to kind of exorcise. Not, I mean, exercise and exorcise something to try yeah. to get through it to get somewhere else. Um, and I think it was also just like I was in grad school and just really perplexed as to what what was authentic, what is um, a logical move, and what direction for myself and my work. And it was not not like a cheat sheet, but it was almost like this is the only thing I can do. If I mimic some of these people within this canon, I can somehow start to define or um, discern myself and my practice from um, these other folks within the canon and figuring, figuring all that stuff out. There is, an, through that mimicry mm-hmm. of that past work, mm-hmm. there is an interesting question of appropriation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, uh-huh. Then, uh-huh. and then to have been faced with these mm-hmm. questions of appropriation uh-huh. in your work now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us, yeah. tell me more about what... Okay, so so um, in my case, I feel like in, in instances as simple as, you know, how I named these uh, studies um, via, let's say, if the, if the video lives on YouTube... Um, the title will say, you know, walking in an exaggerated manner, you know, Nauman, you know, uh, 67 to 68, which I think and I hope are the right dates. Um, <laughs> and then Norris, you know, 2010, 2011. So definitely not only appropriation, but homage, you know, right. definitely stating that this was one instance and this is a new instance. And and then in the case of Abramovic in a similar way, titling the works in a way where her, she's being recognized, you know, Abramovic, you know, in the date 71 or whatever, and Norris, et cetera. And um, so in that way, I feel like there's a level of acknowledgement that I'm not trying to undermine or, or mm-hmm. pretend that I invented this in yeah, any way. Without a doubt. It's me um, trying to uh, compare and contrast two moments in time with two different bodies, whether racially different or gender 
Um, and then in the, in the instance of Alex Bag with the semester videos, because that, that was sort of the basis mm-hmm. of my inspiration was Alex Bag's untitled video where she spoofed um, SVA students um, while she was a student actually at Cooper Union. And she acted out these, um, you know, ideas of, of what it meant to be in art school. And within the four semesters of mine, um, the second, the third semester was word for word one of Alex Baggs's episodes. And that was my way of going, hey, I'm not pretending that I invented this idea to pretend to be an art student. I'm actually going to throw this thing in where I actually insert one of her episodes word for word. And I was like wearing a a little bug in my ear where I was able to kind of, um, you know, listen and recite as a way to say, A, things in the art world haven't changed that much because people are hearing these words come out of my mouth and they sound very present, very relevant. Um, So even though I don't name her explicitly in the title, I mimic one of hers word for word, but then within the tagging system online, um, or maybe not in the title, but in some of the place where you can leave the extra information, I credit Alex Bag as, you know, an inspiration or whatever it is. Um, I forget how I worded it, but, but her name is mentioned um, as is, like I have on Ray-Ban glasses or something. So like I credit, you know, Ray-Ban and whatever the branding, all the brands that you could see and the song that was in the background or whatever. Um, and I credit Alex Bag in that way, not in the title, because I think then with that work, it wasn't about a specific compare contrast as much as it was um it it was supposed to be a slower reveal in that way and I think I set it up where people can very quickly um find Alex Bag and I even like tag her so that her videos show up in this in the you know the side lines of mine so that I'm creating that relationship it's not as though I'm trying to hide anything so I think and this is the first emergence of Mika Jean. Yeah, well, she wasn't necessarily called Mika Jean then, but that was one of the instances where I think I was trying to play a character that wasn't specifically someone outside of myself. It was supposed to loosely kind of fluctuate between my own ideals, um, the things that I hear and heard in my periphery and who I strive to be or aspects of myself that I'm embarrassed of. So I think those semester videos were certainly hovering over what was going to be Mika Jean, definitely. Um, you know, and I think one of the biggest criticisms of those semester videos was that, in, in all, you know, I left the comments field open so people can make comments, and there are a plethora of... Um, of comments and people going, you know, this is just you with a wig on complaining, you know, or something. But I, I like that sort of slippery definition of who the self is and who the self is not. Mm-hmm. And what happens if you put on a wig? Do you become someone else? You know, what, what does any of that mean? When, how, how far does a transition have to go before, you know, you become mm-hmm. someone else? Um, so I think in that in that way, 
um, those works are different than the experience that I had with the film because I feel like I, again, I wasn't doing it um, to an end to take credit for something that I was suggesting was original and I wasn't trying to undermine Nauman or Abramovic or Alex Baggs. I was actually just trying to create a conversation within myself and my experience and and them and their experience as artists and performers. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I do think it's quite ironic that I did works where I appropriated others and now I'm the one being appropriated. But I also just feel like, you know, Nauman, Alex Baggs, and Abramovic, they're, they're icons. I mean, like, they're within the canon. Right. There's no way that I'm going to appropriate their work and somehow all of a sudden leap over them and become this other thing. And that's certainly not what it's about. It's actually to almost prove the complete opposite in a way. Right, right. And, um, and I just felt like the situation with this film... Also, I don't know them. I wasn't interacting with them personally. Right. This was a very personal um, interaction with people that were around me that I think, you know, maybe thought that I was a really, you know, thought, thought that, I, yes, I had a platform and that's a great reason to be involved. But maybe I'm not smart enough as a business person or maybe I'm one of those flighty artists, you know, like let's say to use a really bad analogy. I'm, I'm the little Wayne in the situation. I'm so doped up on that syrup that, you know, my record deal's all fucked up, you know, and and all right. of a sudden, all of a sudden I wake up and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. What happened? Oh, you know, oh, everybody around me has just sucked me dry. Um, kind of like that. Um you know, and I think, and one of the other really strange things was that 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 a, someone who is a colleague uh, who teaches at the institution that I that I teach at showed up at my house the day before the shoot and was like, "I want some back end," and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> um, that sounds painful. Um, but this idea that there was money to be made with this film and it, it was coming out of a very I guess traditional film language where I'm just like I'm an artist this is an art film like I'm not expecting to make any money from this like this is for art's sake right I understand people make films to make money but I'm making this film for the purpose of making art and um he was kind of like well you need to go talk to somebody because I need I need some back in because I'm just like, dude, this is not, this is just not what this is. And he was, he, he like kind of threatened to not have the crew show up. Uh, and, and it was just one of those things. Like I remember having like a complete meltdown in my house and I just felt really alone, you know, and intimidated and going, but wait, am I wrong? Like, do I owe somebody some back end? I am in sort of new territory. I'm sort of, but it's, but I think also what I've learned as an artist, the mistake that I will not make again, and it was similar to that um, video that I showed yesterday that I did at Skowhegan, that sun, um, sunrise video, sunset video, um, was that I didn't know when I was doing that 
necessarily. Although I told somebody, I'm going to go do something at six o'clock after dinner, you know, and have the camera. But I wasn't sure if it was a performance, if it was a video, if it was a video documenting a performance. I hadn't defined what it was. And it seems like maybe, oh, well, that doesn't matter. You don't have to define it. But I mean, the difference was what people were seeing they thought was a performance. But I was really struggling in the water and nobody helped me because they just thought they were watching someone who's in control. For God's sake, I'm at the Skowhegan Arts Residency. I must have it together. I must know what I'm doing. Um, and I felt I feel like this film kind of happened in a similar way that I didn't have the language to say although in my mind it's exactly what I thought was happening like well I'm an artist and I'm making a film but this is just like my video art on steroids and if I could shoot this on my own I would but I can't and you know this does require a level of, of organization that I don't possess, you know, like someone to go, okay, we're shooting in all these locations. So there needed to be someone to go, okay, on this day, we're going to go here, 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 because they're all within a, you know, similar, you know, uh, 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 geographical range from one another. And on this is in this day, we're going to do this. And this is how a budget works. And, you know, on what there were moments where I felt so out of control, just in the nature of like, not feeling helpful in certain conversations, but there's no reason to feel shameful of that. Like, that's actually what smart people do. You hire people that know how to do those things that you don't know how to do, right? But as a, as a woman and maybe as someone that was just entering new territory, I somehow fluctuated between feeling, you know, dumb, ashamed, you know, out of control, like I wasn't the expert anymore, but it was also based on how people were interacting with me. Right. Well, and there's this tricky... I mean, I loved that your Nettie talk was called Notes on Failure mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons, part of which at the Project Room were really interested in failure. We had a, a whole subtopic on failure. I saw that and, on the website. And we mm -hmm. really are interested in people talking about how failure influences creative practice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting to hear about how those that vulnerability... Mm -hmm is both what makes the creative practice mm -hmm. the creative practice, but mm -hmm. it also means you have these experiences of feeling completely out of control. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance mm -hmm. this experience of taking risks and doing things you don't know what you're doing mm -hmm. and simultaneously you know, trying to have authorship mm -hmm. of that work and mm -hmm. trying to have ownership and not letting it get out of your control? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you said it. That was it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the strange, dark humor and beauty in all of this is that it would have been one thing if I were making a film about, you know, a red house named Joe. You know, it's some made-up narrative about some made-up thing. Then there may be a lot of questions. Well, if somebody helped me pick out the name Joe, and if somebody helped me decide the house was going to be red and not purple, then then I understand that there's from some room for for you know uh, this idea of intellectual property and who owns what idea. And I could see it getting a lot more messy. But it was all me, all my life, all my family, all like. There was no room for anybody mm -hmm. to 
invent anything. And, um, and, and the whole idea that the film was, it's called Mika Jean, How She Got Good. And the strange thing is that although I'm proud of the, of the product of the final um, film and sort of installation and the sort of uh, generative things that are coming out of this um, work, that the getting good doesn't exactly happen in the first installment of the film. And it hasn't exactly happened in the second installment. But the getting good, I think, has more to do with the journey and the process of what I've learned, you know, what I will and will not do again, um, a way to use words more, um, you know, like I, I was given, I've been, you know, and of course, like everybody has input and really, you know, close friends who have had to listen to me over the last year, you know, re-explain, defend myself, get pissed off and just say any damn thing, you know, anger, hurt, um, you know, they're just like, well, first of all, and even my grandmother, you know, the fact that anybody would want to steal from you says a lot. You know, the fact that you've put yourself in a, in a you put yourself out there, like you have something for somebody to steal. That's a lot more than what some other people can say that they have, right. you know, or, or, um, you know, just thinking about the, like the getting good aspect that could not have happened unless things went this way. If it ended up just being all kumbaya, then I might not have grown the way that I have. And I think this problem, this experience, is only setting me up to be in a better position when there's more at stake. And even though it felt like, wow, you know, thirty, you know, twenty-eight thousand dollars—that's a lot at stake. That's more money than I've ever raised. And right, but but it's it's just shown me that if I can do that, then who's to say what I can't do next? So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It is my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>